We are recording this episode on the first night of Kwanzaa. Our parents are older than Kwanzaa. Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way, I want to jump over the pack, and here he comes! This is Buddy Franklin! This is the greatest showman! Got the handle off to Myers, Myers looking for the lead of Stengel. Gee, they're good. Gee, they're sharp. Randall Dazzle Rioli. Oh, who else? McDonald! From inside the centre square! This is episode 145 of Americans Watching the Footy. I am Benjamin Castle with my brother Ethan here in South San Francisco, California. Um, do Australians know about Kwanzaa? So basically, it's like, it's it's pretty funny to me. Um, Kwanzaa is like taught as like this other holiday besides Hanukkah and Christmas, as if it's like widely celebrated when really it's just like celebrated within like Pan-African movements. Nothing wrong with it, it's just like, presented in American schools, especially elementary schools, as, like, a way bigger and more common thing than it actually is. It was, and I just, I just find it funny. It was created in 1966. And yeah, it's, like, compared to these things that are, you know, like, hundreds of years old, it's just... Is, is it a thing in Australian schools? I don't know. I want to know. Wait a minute. The Saints' last premiership occurred before Kwanzaa was first celebrated. Similarly, see, I was trying to find... Something similar, there have been these memes going around about, you know, like, people being born the same year people died. Like, what was it, uh, Masuda Zil being the reincarnation of Enzo Ferrari? Okay, but a lot of times it's not even people that look like each other, which is way better. Like like the one that South Mega Fan had recently with Diana and Asava Radagalea? Yeah, well, unfortunately, I found out that Taylor Swift was born 12 days before the death of Nikolai Ceausescu. So, Taylor Swift is not the reincarnation of Nikolai Ceausescu. This time of year is bad for communists. Uh, He died on Christmas, and then two years later, on this day, December 26th, the USSR became the USS Art. That joke used to hit harder. Did Jay Foreman use it or no? Somebody I watch on YouTube. You know what? I think it was uh, half as interesting. I was going to say, it sounded like half as interesting or geography now. Yeah, it's it's a very half as interesting joke. But, But your new sporting passion, though, also involves something that hasn't happened in a long time. And I should also note that we are recording this during a Detroit Pistons game. Detroit basketball! And I don't want to, uh, I don't want to get you too excited, Ethan. But right now, with about three minutes left of the first quarter, the Pistons lead the Brooklyn Nets by seven at Little Caesars Arena. I'm going to try to find an illegal stream. Uh, th- this is something that we need to do. We need to keep tabs on this. Ethan is a Pistons fan while this is going on. Yes, I've decided it would be really fun to just be super, super positive about a team. We're like, it's like, ah, well, at least they tried really hard and they led by eight at one point. I want to see how long I can go watching a team without getting expectations or being even remotely negative. I almost want this streak to keep going because of it. Do you want it to keep going? Not really. I kind of want them to win. It would be really fun if they go from this to being, like, actually good again. Ooh, they're wearing jerseys that say 313 on them. 
Shouts out Eminem. Now everybody in the 313, put your motherfucking hands up and follow me. Oh, no, the, sorry, the Jersey City Detroit, um, the, but the logo on the score bug says 313. Ah, okay. Almost as dumb as having 5280 on a jersey, which for those of you that are communists that don't know how to do real measurements, that's a mile. So it's 5,280 feet. So the Nuggets, in addition to having like the player number on the front of their jersey, also has 5280. On some of their uniforms. Yeah, it's, it's a stupid design. The NBA makes a lot of stupid uniforms, and I'm glad Footy doesn't do that. Well, they make a lot of money from it. Yeah, they still look like shit. Uh, back to the number project. Yeah, so this is part two of three in our best by number of 2023. So if you didn't tune in the first time, we went through numbers one through 16, just doing a retrospective in a different way, focusing mostly on the 2023 season. and. You know, we probably had the best batch of players in that first one, or actually, I'm not sure, because some pretty juicy stuff here in the middle of the AFL number range, and we are going to go through all the way to 50, because every number 1 to 50 was represented this year by at least one player in an AFL game. So we pick up with number 17. Remember, our last two players were Sam Taylor and Brent Daniels, and uh, there's a common theme here because number 17 is Finn Callahan. We chose him over Daniel Rioli with honorable mentions as well, going to Jake Bowie, grand final star Billy Frampton, and Marcus Windhager, who was in our amazing thumbnail for the last episode. Yes, at the start of the human centipede. Now, speaking of Marcus Windhager, what number is he wearing this coming season? Uh, seven? Two. He switched to number two, which was Danny Frawley's old number, so pretty big deal that he's been honored like that by the club, and Jack Higgins has taken... Trevor Barker's old number of one. So some responsibility there levied on both of them, but we're going by the 2023 numbers. And Rioli was a tough one for me to pass up, but definitely less prominent of a season for Rioli this year compared to 2022, where he was kind of a revelation moving to the halfback flag and working there alongside guys like Marlon Pickett. I think we can call what Callahan's season was a breakout with as young as he is, was pick three in the 2021 draft, played just a handful of games in his first season. But from the preseason, it was clear that he was going to have a more prominent role this year under Adam Kingsley. And he's a really, really solid left-footed kick and really looked like he belonged at the AFL level right away. A really fast wing as well. What was the first time that you really took notice of him, Ethan? Probably towards the middle of the season when they were really playing some of their best and starting to turn heads. And we kind of caught on a little bit before a lot of people did. Uh, we have written down here his round seven performance in the Sydney Derby. Yeah, that was the first time I think people really started taking notice. I'd seen him a bit prior because I was watching the preseason fixtures, got used to his playing style, but he got the rising star nomination in that amazing Sydney Derby comeback with a... 26 disposal, 10 mark effort, and just continued solid form from there toward the back half of the season. Or wait, no, because this is an Australian thing. We have to say it. The pointy end. He stood up again on the wing against the Bulldogs in round 20 and in the elimination final against the Saints as well. Haven't seen him get too many chances for goal, but is a pretty reliable field kick. And on a team that's got a good mix of ages and really is coming into their own 
in the back half. I think Callahan's in a really good spot to take the team along with him as he continues to age and refine things a little bit. 27 disposals when they absolutely murked Frio in round 14 as well. Was that his high for the year? Um, I believe so. Sounds about right. 27 for a wing is pretty high, especially someone who, who still plays more in the defensive half. Yes, 27 is his career high in his relatively short career. He actually had to face another good wing that day, Nathan O'Driscoll, and O'Driscoll was limited to 14. Yeah, we we were begging for O'Driscoll to get more AFL time throughout the season. He got that one in round 14, but uh, just, just one of many complaints we have with Frio, but the focus isn't on Frio here. It's on GWS. You're looking at things that were different from GWS between 2022 and 23. Just much more of a willingness to use the outside of the ground, I think. And part of that was from some of the new faces. Callahan, a relatively new face considering his minimal AFL experience before this season. And then you had the combination of Brent Daniels, who, with whom we ended our most recent episode, and Toby Bedford on the half board flanks keeping those parts of the ground occupied and letting Toby Green do basically whatever he wanted in the forward half. What I noticed about Toby Green as well was he had a lot more involvement at the center bounce this year. I think that was going to be a strength of his. I didn't think the Giants were going to require that, but with the strong contested player he is, it proved to be really beneficial. So just there's much more of a system set under Adam Kingsley that seems to fit the playing profile, even for the older guys on there, like Steven Canelio. Even though the rest of the league has had some time to kind of figure it out, go through things this offseason, I, I don't think this is a flash-in-the-pan type of team at all. Any further thoughts? Nope. And one last thing about Callahan. Remember, he missed five games this past season because of a nagging issue with his Achilles tendon. So he was working through that toward the back part of the season and still put up the performances he did. So there's definitely room for improvement. Number 18 is another player who missed a few games here and there near the back of the season. And also for some reason at the start, because it took Carl Nawal to say, yeah, Sam, uh, get that surgery. We're talking about Sam Walsh, who had a herniated disc at the end of the 22 season. And for some reason took a long time into the off season for him to get that discectomy, but he came back after about a month and then really got into form around the time the Blues started winning. Seemed like a pretty obvious pick, although we did give some consideration to Matt Rowell and his massive Sharon collection. Don't forget his grass-eating habits as well, which is w one of the just weirder storylines of the season. I think if we did this last year, we could have said Rowell. Could have said Tyson Stengel, too. If we were really, like, weighting finals performances super heavily, Kadeen Coleman would have uh, probably won the Norm Smith had the Lions managed to win the grand final. I would have said Coleman or Joe Danaher because he would have been the target for that last inside 50. Props as well to Jason Horn Francis for his first season with Port. And we appreciate Hugh Greenwood always thought that he had more value than people gave him credit for. I think he's changed number as well to number one for North this coming year. He just got overshadowed when other guys were healthy. When they had lost a bunch of their midfield, he was kind of the one keeping them afloat. Yeah, particularly when Luke Davies Uniac was out. But yeah, I think I think Walsh is a pretty obvious one here as Ethan is excited over what I'm assuming is a piston steal. Uh they gotta stop. And then big guy dropped to pass. Ah, uh, of course. 
But it's okay. They're playing hard. They're giving it their all. They're trying their best. Got to give 100% play as a team. Teamwork makes the dream work. Sam Walsh in 18 games averaged over 28 and a half disposals and close to five tackles. More of a part of pressure this year. It was also usually the first player to get the ball off the stoppage. That connection with Patrick Cripps remained there. And then after missing four of the late rounds with a hamstring injury, he was the best player on the Blues from there and won the Gary Ayers Award despite Carlton not making the grand final. Very rare to see somebody winning that award despite not even being in the grand final because of the 50% boost that provides. Uh, who was the last player to win that without even making the grand final? That's a good question. Do you have any idea there? Let's take a look at this. Uh, going back to 2016, he might have actually been the first. Yeah, the award was just started in 2016, so Walsh was the first to win it without making the grand final. Had a minimum of 28 disposals in each of the three finals he played. A contested machine, especially in the elimination final against the Swans. Contributed a couple goals in the semifinal against Melbourne, which you could argue was the game of the year. I don't even think it was the best final. Would you put that to the grand final or the pre or the Collingwood prelim or both? I would consider ahead of Carlton Sydney. I mean, Carlton Sydney was a good game. And we're going to talk about another guy who came up big in that one. Not too far from now. Spoilers, I guess. I guess the big thing for Walsh now is wanted to see him over a full season plus a finals campaign because he hasn't quite had that durability yet. He's a player that I'm definitely going to pay more attention to this coming year because, you know, as we're going to start doing tracking our own Brownlow stuff, I want to see like, all right, is he really, you know, that great or is he a high possession guy? You know, what I've been watching for a lot of times, I can overlook a lot of the midfield sequences. So I'm looking forward to taking a closer look at him and really evaluating like, yeah, is he that dude or is he just, you know, is he just someone that people like because of the number? I think also if there are any games that, he plays where he's really separated from Patrick Cripps on the field. Maybe he's the the one to really contest at stoppages rather than Cripps, which is where he's really found a home on route to winning that Brownlow medal last year. I think that'll be something to take notice of. Number 19 is Rowan Marshall. That he only got three Brownlow votes is part of why we're going to start doing our own Brownlow stuff. Rucks deserve more love. We certainly gave a bunch of love. Um, The runner-up here was... Liam Jones, honestly, not a great crop at 19. I get candidates who had flashes, but not enough substance. Nick Haynes, Brady Hoff, Bailey Humphrey. Hoff did have the really good game against, who was it, Charlie Cameron? He held Charlie Cameron goalless. And yeah, so there's there's potential there for him to become. Oh, for, for a small defender like him to play up against someone like Charlie Cameron and hold him goalless was really impressive. That was the one bright spot for the Eagles in that entire game there at the GABA. Um, speaking of the Eagles and the Lions, you know what's happening in 2024, right? The Lions are going to Optus Stadium to play the Eagles. That has not happened before. Still kind of in shock over that. Part of me is actually kind of disappointed that it's going to happen because it ruins one of those streaks. Yeah, and it would just be like fun if it never happened until we went or if it just didn't happen at all. Are they serving some like some Lions fans that are saying, no, we have to see them playing Frio out here because of Lockie Neal? What, what is it there? But yeah, I, you're going to hear me talking about Brady Hoff a bunch when it comes to what is looking up for the Eagles. A tweet is ability as a small defender and a wing. But 
the attention is on Rowan Marshall here. And he was the player that I was most interested to watch for the Saints coming into this season as well. Because he was the Saints' main ruck for the first time since 2019. He'd had Patty Ryder with him for the past four years. And though Ryder missed a decent part of 2022, this was the first time going into the year where you know, okay, Rowan is the main ruck. And remember how much they struggled when they only had one of him or Ryder in past years. So the thought was, oh man, this is going to be rough. Yeah, well, the two of them really did play off each other. Usually you had the other one of them staying forward as a marking threat. But where Marshall is better in terms of marking and one-on-ones is in defense. And Marshall did shine back there when he was the extra man back. Easily over five marks a game, and most of that were in the back half, if not in the defensive 50. And one of the just cleanest rucks as well, 44 frees for to just 25 against. When you got so many frees awarded right there in the immediate contest on the ball up, when it's a block or some sort of high contact, that's something that's really easy to scrutinize. And Marshall's one of the cleanest. Just one of the most capable full field rucks in the league. How tall is he? 201 centimeters. So I think that would be 6'7". Six 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 seven, not like enormous for his position, you know. Good sized, but nothing that stands out. I just, I just really like the way he plays. Yeah, and one, yeah, it was, it was ridiculous to me that he didn't get more love from the voters. And it's not like any Saints had this huge Brownlow year. I know that Jack Steele had cracked the top ten once or twice before. Who's the furthest up Saints player this year? Oh, well, Jackson Clair got twenty one and. Brad Crouch with 18, I think that was the big surprise among the Saints that Crouch had the impact that he did. I guess Crouch getting votes in nine games was relevant to there, but that still shouldn't excuse the voters from just completely forgetting about Rowan Marshall altogether. And if you look at some of his best performances, he had him against some strong rooks. I labeled the game he had, even in the loss against Melbourne in round 17, going up against Max Gone and drawing pretty even with him. In the win against Richmond in round 22, he beat Toby Dan Curtis. Definitely sort of a revenge game there for how easily Richmond handled them for most of their prior matchup in Trent Cotchin's 300th. Round 23 against the Cats, Geelong basically had no ruck, and he dominated. And considering how Toby Conway did the next week against Tim English, I wish he would have gotten a chance there as well. But hey, that was where he got one of his Bravo votes. Nonetheless, I was very impressed with Marshall. In that situation, again, I like the guy a lot. I, I think that's pretty clear to us. If if we end up creating that, like, all-your-cool team, I feel like he'd probably be our starting rook. I don't know. I mean, he doesn't do anything, like, super flashy or exciting. He's just... Doesn't need to be. You don't need to be that as a rook in particular to... Yeah, but, like, all-your-cool team, I'd defer to, like, Sam Draper. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Um, Sam Draper's cool. You know, once you saw him, nothing was the same. Number 20, the entire North Melbourne Football Club offense. <laughs> yeah, it's it's Nick Larky. Uh, Connor Rosie is the runner-up. Connor Rosie, who of course will have a new number this coming year as well. What number, Ethan? One, because he's the, he is the captain now. He is the captain now. And he has had a very busy offseason. I think he just got married. He's He and his wife are expecting a kid. He's going to be the captain now. A lot of responsibility for Rosie 
all of a sudden, I, I think he's ready for it. Other candidates, Jeremy McGovern, Ed Richards, and if he had been healthier, possibly Peter Wright. We really like two-meter snake bite or whatever we decide to call him now. bite. He's just snake bite. Do Australians pay attention to darts at all, and would they understand snake bite? Considering how much Australians love gambling, absolutely. Also, wait, I'm trying to remember the name of the Australian guy that with the long hair, Simon Whitlock. Haven't seen him in doing any big things as of late, but I think we're around the time that the, the PDC championship has just started, right? That's only streaming here. Um, it used to always be on, like, local channels while the NFL was on. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Let's take a look at, uh, did Whitlock, is Whitlock still in things? Um, he lost in the second round to Gary Anderson, one of the highest seeds. All right, that's unfortunate. Yeah, wow, you were already in the, I guess we're approaching the fourth round of the World Darts Championship already. We'll have to find streams for that at some point, too. But uh, the entire North Melbourne offense, uh, of course, a loving reference to the entire Norwich City Council. <laughs> I've got one already. <laughs> Nick Larky with 71 goals to finish third in the Coleman on a bottom-dwelling team throughout the entire season. A first-time All-Australian, second in the club best and fairest to... Harry Sheasel. Remember, Larky did not have the advantage of playing against North Melbourne. He did have the advantage of playing against West Coast twice. But so did Tex, and so did Charlie Curnow. He only had... I think it was eight against West Coast. So Correct. He had six goals in round one, but only two in round 20. If you take out, he had nine in round 24 against the Suns. He had six in round 23 against the Tigers. He also had five in the loss to Collingwood in round 11, where North gave him a little bit of a fit there. But um, just if you take out, you know, the two games the teams played against the lowest ladder opponents, Nick Larky would have that sort of adjusted goal-kicking crown, and rightfully so. But then... Like, you know, even if you chain, you know, you like divide it for like a per game thing. I don't know. That's I, I would assume he still would. I, I'm assuming so. If, if you take, you know, goals scored not against North and West Coast divided by games. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, And his shot accuracy was ridiculous. Over 70 percent, which is like I want to say it's Todd Marshall like. But even but even Todd Marshall didn't do that this past year. And mainly he was dealing with a good number of concussions. I think he. I think Todd Marshall had three concussions this past year. Yeah, something like that. Um, how many goalless games without looking did he have? I'm going to guess two. What? Who was it again? If you're mentioning it, Geelong. Nope. He had two. Who was it? Round four against the Blues on Good Friday. Uh, was he matched up against Jacob Wiedering there? I don't know, but clearly he doesn't care about the kids. Oh, clearly not. He was clearly the, like, ooh, you know what? God, if I had realized sooner... He it would kind of be irrelevant now, but like uh, the fuck them kids mean, but with him instead of Michael Jordan. Maybe we can make that a thing for next year. Just someone who goes goalless on Good Friday. How soon did North have to win a Good Friday game? The attendance of this past year's and that it was competitive for three quarters gives them a little bit of leeway. Yeah, because it was honestly just be competitive because some of their games in prior years were just so dickless. It was the largest Good Friday crowd I think they've ever they'd ever had over forty nine thousand. Yeah, I just think of the uh, the Josh Bruce performance in particular. Josh Bruce now retired. Yeah, yeah. After doing another ACL, I, I just think Larky is one of the most obvious picks here. Even with the season Rosie had, it's such an obvious game plan. You've got to put 
your toughest man on Larky, and the entire season he outdid everyone he faced. So I'm glad he got the All-Australian recognition. And really, how do you stop the guy at this point? So here's here's the question. You know, how would he do if there were other really good key forwards around him? You mean, it, it, even if there was, there was just like one more good, consistent mark around him, could, he could use like more consistent play out of a small forward like Paul Curtis, who we really enjoy, obviously. But I feel pretty good about the idea of him still being very successful considering what he does as the main focus on the game plan. Like, if he wasn't the main focus or was just one of the main focuses, that would be pretty scary. Although he would probably also get fewer opportunities. Yeah, so you do have to consider that. Let's take a look down the line here. Well, a healthier season out of Cam Zerhar would help because Zerhar only played uh, 16 games. And whereas he put up some monster performances in 2022, including that King of Marvel game where I think he had six to beat Richmond, still one of the funniest games. Yes, that game was really funny. Missed that one because Dad and I were driving up to Oregon that night. That was the funniest game. Um, So Larky was 71. Zerhar was third with 20. Second on the team had how many goals? 29. 26. It was Jaden Stevenson. Stevenson with, I want to say, a steadier year. I think Clarkson figured out something there. Like, if we're comparing Larky to Oscar Allen, who I think is a good comparison because, you know, easily the best forward on a bad team. You watch a lot of Oscar Allen. And I watched a lot of Larky as well. I would still take Larky. See, there you go. And that is not even slightly an insult to Oscar Allen. Not at all. By the way, who was fifth on the team in goals? Uh, Paul Curtis? No, Curtis was fourth with 17. Fifth with 12 from just 14 games. Who's the guy that we loved watching so much near the end of the year? Eddie Ford. Eddie Ford. He and Zerhar might end up needing to be those more consistent targets for North to kind of get some of the weight off of Larky. We are super high on Eddie Ford. If you go back and look at what we've tweeted and just what we said in our recaps about the final few games for North, it should be pretty obvious how much we love what Eddie Ford's already doing there. So I think things are looking up for North to have a bit more diversified of, of an offensive approach this coming year. And even though you may see Larky's goal totals dip a tiny, I think it'll I think it'll end up benefiting him. Number 21, there were two very obvious candidates. I made my case for Tom Libertore, but... I made my case for Errol Golden. Yeah, I know you cape harder for him than most of than either of us do for most players, so I kind of just deferred to you on this one because your argument was going to be stronger. Real quick, though, do love Libba, the contested possession god. Other candidates, Alir Alir, Noah Balta, Dyson Heppel, but I'm going to just defer to you. So take it away. Tell me about Errol Golden. I would not have thought that at such a young age, still 22 under 22 eligible. Is he 22 at this point? He's still 21. Jeez. What does he turn? He turns 22 in July. Even from last year, the thing I said about Golden he, is he plays well above his age. Just the way he the way he sees the field. Just You compare him to Chad Warner, who were the two really real breakout young players for the Swans these past couple years. Warner might have the flashier plays, but Golden, I think, is the more level-headed one. I think is more a driver of their overall movement. He's He tends to be the first guy to get a lot of those balls still, even on a team with guys like Luke Parker and James Robottom. He's 
taken some of the responsibility off them, which has especially benefited an aging Parker, who's you know still productive at this point. His career just needs to not be the emphasis of the midfield. So really this past year, you can say Golden became the Swans' midfield leader. A first-time All-Australian, won the club best and fairest at age 21, tied for fourth in the Brownlow, and in the final part of the season, he was arguably the best player in the league. From rounds 15 to 24, he pulled in nine of those 10 games and got three votes in the six of them. And depending on the game and the matchup, he was able to switch really easily from inside to outside. And that's reflected in some of the statistical variants that he had, I think. Against a team like Adelaide, for example, in round 23, he had to go up against guys like Rory Laird and Luke Pedler right at the contest. He was at the center of that action and had 16 contested possessions. He was right there going up against Tom Libertore in round 18 against the Bulldogs and got the best on ground over him. Then he's able to spread the field just as easily. For example, back-to-back games against Essendon in round 20 and the Giants in round 21. Spread out had more of an outside job there and showed some of his goal-kicking ability as well. One of the better long kicks of the league as well, and that includes going toward goal. I'm also just really happy to be talking about Golden like this because for someone with such, with the outside perspective that we had, not knowing anything about how prominent he was in the Swans Academy, and you know, even before we noticed the commentary start talking about him as much as we did, I noticed even just from flashes in 2021, like, okay, this guy's for real. And remember, at first, we were much more attentive to, you know, like, Guys who scored instead of midfield stuff, so... I mean, Golden did show that scoring ability a bit more than your average midfielder, I'd say, so I think that helped. At the same time, just the cleanliness with which he plays, and then just finding out, okay, this guy is as young as he is, and he's able to do that. He is just poised to be just, like, perennial, all-Australian and Brownlow contender material, and as much as you dislike the Swans... I feel like you've got to like this guy, like, want to see some sort of success for him. Oh, yeah. It, it's got to be tough, just like, with how much we enjoy the style that the squads play, with all the players that we enjoy from them, guys like Golden, Nick Blakey, and then you think, oh, oh wait, I, I'm supposed to not like them. Or really, it's not that you're not supposed to like them. I don't think Geelong really has had anything against them since, what, 2005? I was just pretty pissed about that. 2021 game and just something about you know like sydney being the more world-renowned city there's there's that too but yeah as a team i think the swans are quite good like i can speak about them without the bias coming through on that like i can evaluate their talent i just don't want them to win much and it's the stuff below his knees that doesn't show up on the statues that that he's able to do really well also one of the more capable crumbs in the midfield and able to avoid some of the the nastier low contact while doing it, has been able to stay very healthy for his first few years as well, which has probably enhanced my opinion of him even further. So Errol Golden was a very top-of-the-radar, like, blaring-on-the-radar midfielder heading into the season. Go to the other New South Wales team, and there's somebody at number 22 who should have been blaring like that, but was really under the radar for us, that being Josh Kelly. He's our selection for number 22, which had one of the longest lists of really kind of eligible players, I would say, out there. I'd say the considered play. Considered players, I'd say. I think the runner-up would probably be Isaac Reagan, with a big level of appreciation as well to 
Nick Blakey and Luke Bruce a year ago. This would have been between Nick Blakey and Mitch Duncan. The Cavs still rely a lot on Duncan yeah. too much. He's still pretty good, but it's more that they need to be better without him because you can't expect someone of his age to play every game. But yeah, Luke Bruce, uh, Charlie Dixon, another one who injuries were a factor. Jack Higgins really liked his game. In limited time, you can mention Jacob Hopper as well. Yeah, so this was one of the more competitive ones, not where there was like one standout or a clear class of standouts. Like number three was the other one where we had nine candidates on the board and three right at the top with Canelio, Newcomb, and Sarong. We went with Caleb Sarong. Yeah. I didn't feel especially strongly about any of these necessarily, but had like positive things to say about all of them. And it was just like, oh yeah, there are a lot of pretty solid number 22s. By the way, Remember, Ethan, this is Josh Kelly. No, I knew that. I actually knew that this time. Okay, what I number? I totally didn't just look it up. Yes, you did. What number? I is did to confirm it, but I was pretty sure it was Josh. What number does Jake Kelly wear? Not 22, because Sam Durham, 22. Yeah, he wears 29. Okay, I knew it was something in the 20s. Okay, there we go. But Josh Kelly's numbers weren't, you know, anything crazy compared to last season. Very similar with about 27 disposals, 11 contested on average. But to have that role still, to put up those numbers in a midfield where you've also got, uh, where you've got a lot of attention being paid to him, as well as Steven Canelio and Tong Reed. That, this is a case where really there was sort of a, I, I guess kind of a triumvirate there almost, where they helped take the heat off of each other. And Kelly was the one that got the most taggy attention late in the year, and he worked through those really well. I think the, the clearest case there was in the elimination final against St. Kilda, when he was tagged by, of course, Marcus Windhager, still put up two goals and 27 disposals, and probably would have been one of my candidates to get votes in that game. I don't have the, the Guerriers votes in front of me, but I, I feel like it would be hard to pass him up. And you look at the the top games that he put up that he put up this year, and they won pretty much all of them. I'm not sure how he'd rank those three Giants midfielders that we mentioned, Canelio. Tom Green and Kelly. I think this year, just this year specifically, I would go Canelio, then Green, then Kelly. But that Kelly's even in the conversation with those is a really good reflection on him, especially considering that he's now 28, which is like really old in the footy world. Yeah, I believe the way that our father would pronounce it would be ancient. Our dad has weird pronunciation stuff going on. Appreciate. Yeah, I think that's just an East Coast thing. I've heard other no. East Coasters say that. No, that's just a weird thing. Kelly entered the AFL in 2014 after being the number two pick the year before and seems to only be getting better with age, which is also a reflection as we continue here praising the Giants on what Adam Kingsley did to bring back the speed-oriented outlook for the Giants in general. We talked, maybe it wasn't quite that, that exact same tsunami that they had going in 2017 and 19, but... Similar enough that even the older guys on the list were able to use their speed as weapons. I think the biggest difference is that they were they were better defensively than they were in those prior years. This ended up being an unexpectedly great defensive team. We talked about the center of that already with Sam Taylor, and we'll talk about some of the other reasons why their defense was successful as we go further along here. Number 22 had one of the biggest lists. Number 23 had one of the shortest, but one of the toughest discussions for us to have. A pretty clear third here, 
as hard as that was to believe, was our Norm Smith medalist, Bobby Hill. Dang it, Bobby. This one where I felt pretty strongly about one guy. Benjamin felt pretty strongly about another. We each made our case. I won out on this one with Jacob Wiedering. So Wiedering first, Charlie Cameron second, finishing in the top 10 in goals again, and Bobby Hill third. I just want to mention quickly about Bobby. His career high for goals prior to this season, Ethan, was 14, which seems way too low. Even when you're playing with Toby Green. Maybe that, that's a case of some misuse there. 33 in his first year with Collingwood. He only had one three-goal game as a Giant. He had five games of at least three goals in 2023, and his first career four-goal game in the grand final en route to the Norm Smith. And he easily could have had a fifth, but decided to pass it off to Pendlebury. But the big conversation here revolves around Carlton's best and fairest, Jacob Wiedering. And I was Wiedering versus Charlie Cameron. And my argument is that basically Wiedering didn't have games where he was held in check. Even during that stretch in the middle of the season, that wonderful stretch when Carlton was playing like shit, he was still good. Like he would have been the you're cool and the, you know, the fuck you, fuck you, you're cool. Who's the fuck you I'm out? Ed Curno? I don't know, because... Their fans seem pretty pissed at a lot of people. Well, but, I, I that would fit because he's now retired. Yeah. But the point is, Jacob Wiedering, even when the team wasn't good, he was still good. He was one of the best last line of defense guys all year. Maybe just one of the top defenders, period. I love the way he played. Whether it's one-on-ones, whether it's as a roving defender, I think he deserved way more love in terms of Brownlow stuff. Which do you think he was better at this year, the one-on-one or the roving? I think Rovic, I, I really like him, that kind of sweeping role, just flying in for intercept marks wherever. In, in a, a little bit of a Tom Stewart-like way, with, but, but with greater height. Maybe a little less flashy, but very, very fundamentally sound. I Oh, I would not describe Wiedering's play style as flashy at all. I think that's why he struggles to get some recognition from fans at times. No, but he's, he's the TSA. I'm TS. Motherfucking A. He handles shit? We handle shit. Consider, Consider this situation, situation fucking handle. How has he not made the All-Australian team yet? The globalist? He has been in the All-Australian squad each of the last four seasons. 0 for 4 on making the cut for the 22. It's got to come at some point, right? Even if Tom Stewart and Sam Taylor have good years. Even if you have another Callum Sebastian Nelmus Wilkie coming out of nowhere. Yeah, I still would have probably put him in over Wilkie, and that's not a knock on Wilkie. Wilkie had a great year. But I think Wiedering has to be in there, and that's, like, independent of team success. Even even last year when they pissed everything away, I still love the way he played. You look at the combination of some, some of those best games that he played. Round 17 against Rio, he had more of that one-on-one job, I believe, against Jai Amos, who was Rio's leading goal kicker this year at age... 20, turned 20 during the latter part of the season, managed to hold Amos in check, then had more of that sweeping roll to the tune of 11 marks and 10 intercepts against Collingwood in that surprising win in round 20. Remember, when they were at their worst, he was like the only defender. We asked a couple times, like, can he get any help defensively? Because he's good. If you can't handle me at my Ed Kerno, then you don't deserve me at my Jacob Wiedering. Yes. <laughs> not everyone you lose is a loss follow your dreams okay we, I, we do appreciate that Kurt he just had a march decline this come on his final couple years 
Sorry, this was less about him and more about, like, basic white girl tattoo quotes. Ah, okay. Something that takes up, like, a couple a couple lines of text, you know, probably in cursive. Something in Arabic? Nah. English. Mm. Although Drake got an Arabic word in English above his eyebrow. Uh, right. Right. I don't know, he's, he's a weird-ass guy. I feel like success requires being weird. Now. I think it was a, I think it was a hockey, an ice hockey goaltender, Gump Worsley, who said like, like if you want to be a good goalie, you got to be a little crazy. It's, it's something like that, but it applies to overall success. I mean, I can think of a great example. It's like the exact opposite. Corey Seager. Like, I guess the only thing that makes Corey Seager notable is how much he just doesn't want to talk to media or interact with anybody or be around people. He just wants to be left alone. He just wants to play baseball and yep. have his life. And there's but something like. One of the most unremarkable people ever. There's something to really be appreciated about that. So, no, you don't have to be, I guess. So you were asking, Ethan, could Jacob Wiedering get support in defense? The answer is obviously yes. One, because the Blues ended up winning a lot more down the stretch. And secondly, because of number 24 here on this list. Hello, Noman. Runner-up for 24 is Jai Amos. We just mentioned him. Other guys in consideration were Dane Rampey, Trent Rivers, and David Swallow, but this was a pretty easy pick for both of us. A career year at age 30 for Newman to finish all the way up in second in the club best and fairest. On a team where you had the Coleman medalist, the back-to-back Coleman medalist, and the reigning Brownlow medalist, the top two best and fairest were defenders, and I fucking love that. Do more awards need to be given, like, the, the John Nichols medal voting system? Is that the conclusion here? Head coach and three assistants giving every player up to four votes at the end of each round. Isn't that similar to how they do the Karji? I don't know. Some of these club awards have gone through so many different systems where some years you, know, you can get like hundreds of votes. Some years it's just like Brownlow type thing. The way that it works this year, we're like no cap on like the number of players receiving votes. No cap on God for real, for real. Keep it up, Majik. Facts. I like that meme that was going around for a while, you know, like, if I had a lot of money, I'd have, you know, like, a kid who looks like this follow me around and say, no cap, on God, 100 emoji, for real, for real, stuff like that. When you think about Jacob Wiedering and Nick Newman in relation to each other, Wiedering was the one who would stay back in defense, have that sweeping lateral role there. Newman's job was more vertical. He'd be the one to often take the ball from Wiedering, may not go up for a bunch of contests, but be the next guy in the chain after that first mark, move things out of the back third, averaging close to four rebound 50s a game, and unafraid to make his impact in the forward half as well. I guess Newman, you kind of fit as like a defensive midfielder. He, he was one of the benefactors from kind of the way they shuffled pieces around after some of the struggles at the middle of the year. I still think of him as more of a, a halfback, but I see that just with his willingness to go up the ground. I guess because his starting position would always be in defense, but one of those accelerators from the back third. I think that's a nice way to put it, an accelerator, which is not a role you'd expect from a 30-year-old. How sustainable do you think is Newman's style, knowing that he's already 30? Like, I think you could get a couple more pretty good years out of him. Maybe he ends up just being one of those guys with a lot of stamina towards the end of his career, and like a longer peak than most. I mean, he's only played 110 games, so only 
86 prior to this season, entered the league somewhat late, was a mature age recruit from the Swans in 2017. He was drafted in 2015, so maybe there's less wear and tear on him. What I do feel pretty confident about is that he's going to be one of the linchpin barometer bellwether guys for the Blues this coming year. They need him to be good. It would be tough for them to be successful without him being good. I think that's pretty easy to say, considering that regularly his best performances were when the Blues were at their best. When he got the ball the most was when the Blues had some of their fastest movement in the back end of the season. And then he was able to get some key marks in there as well. He had that last mark to seal the elimination final win over the Swans as well, which must have been just extremely cathartic for him having started his career there with the Swans. We're back, and the Detroit Pistons trail by how many? By how much time left? Uh, a little under 11 minutes. Going to the line to shoot two. All right. Then. Honestly, I think after they win a game, I'm done watching this because this is just... NBA basketball does not entertain me. The shot selection, the crap rebounding, the crap defense. At least you're watching it on mute so you don't have to hear the constant piped-in music, which is another big gripe of ours. Oh, yeah. I was actually like thinking about that not long ago. As a band kid especially, it irks me. Like, it, it's just as irritating as colleges having any piped-in music whatsoever. The band is there for a reason. You're supposed to play Everybody's Everything and nothing else. Cal has done that. UW is very good at that. UW plays that a lot, don't they? Every band plays it a lot. I think Washington in particular. So you'll hear it during the playoff. That's good for, like, trombone suicides and stuff. You want to you wanna learn, like, even more about... My, like, weird music opinions and stuff. Uh, lots of arpeggios. Okay, why not? Uh, BenjaminHK01 on Twitter. Follow Ethan for his sports reporting stuff. That's actually pretty cool. And high school sports are awesome. Just, yeah, it's, it's funny how, like, other parts of the world don't have high school and college sports. It, like, you guys got to get on our level. You would think it's, it's like, I want to say it's sort of pure by comparison but it's really not at this point australia does have like some levels of like school football teams and stuff but, but not the same way yeah. um where do we follow you at castle media you follow us collectively at americans footy on both twitter and instagram and don't forget youtube as well and speaking of instagram cat named Bryant. my cat's breath smells like cat food oh yeah and he is sleeping with his head Partially on the computer right now, which because yeah. he's a big Pistons fan. Ooh, big block. Here we go. Come on, two on one. You got to finish this. In the lead, baby. What I remember, though, Ethan, is that when you were younger, you were a big Sixers fan. Yes, there's a photo of me from a few years ago fitting into the Allen Iverson jersey that fit me when I was five. Like the classic black era Sixers with like the, the black Allen Iverson uniform with the star. If we get to 10,000 followers, I will post it. 10,000? Only? Jeez, over 1,000 followers by what? I don't know, footy pilgrimage? Nah, uh, by opening match of the 2025 season. So a couple months before the pilgrimage, probably? Presumably. Nudes at 50k? We, we need, like, some sort of, like, Devin Robertson type thing that just takes us way over the top. Up by far. Don't get too excited, Ethan. We got a long way to go here. And I'm pretty new, but, like, people are actually cheering and stuff. It's cool. And they were chanting, sell the team a few days ago. Anyway, back to the count up. Yeah, I guess it's the count up. It's a count up. And I think 25 is one of the weaker crops here thus far. And this is another case where availability is the best ability cuts into a guy who would regularly be a top candidate here. 
I have Toby Nankervis second to Jack Crisp. Yeah, Nankervis kind of has this dumb suspension problem, like, and also just injuries cutting into a decent part of the second half of the season anyway. Not as bad with the dumb suspensions as, you know, Brayden Proust and some others, but he's had some dumb avoidable ones. Uh, other candidates here, Sam Collins, Paul Curtis, Jake Stringer, but the winner is Jack Crisp. That name Curtis suspension, by the way, was, uh, what was it, three weeks this year? Yeah, it was, it was three weeks for concussing Jake Lloyd. The big thing that we always notice about Jack Crisp is just the speed that he has with the ball in hand. It's something that we find similar to Jordan Degoe, and I think we kind of foreshadowed talking about Crisp in part one of this. When we mentioned Degoe, we talk about how hard they are to bring down, how committed they are in their tackling efforts, and the speed that they have with the ball. He finished seventh in the club best and fairest. He finished fifth in the Gary Ayers voting for the finals and was only behind Bobby Hill among Collingwood players. And I, I think you can say that his best stretch of games probably was those final four games going from round 24 all the way through to the grand final. His role kind of as a link guy in the middle of the field, linking layers between the, I guess, the defenders and the midfielders more so than the forwards and the mids, right? I think that's right. Defenders to midfield goes a little bit further back at times. You can see him. When Nick Dacos was playing further back at the start of the year, he would link up to him. You saw this Maynard crisp degoey pipeline and sometimes diverging to Nick Dacos, working really well in the final from really midwinter all the way through the end of the season. And that's something that I find, and that's something that just seems sustainable, that you'll have that sort of, you know, three or four person link that will, that will be able to keep speed like that all the way through the Oval. And it's a mix of ages that's doing it on college. Well, that's a big thing that, that we highlight because, you know, when it's not one of the super young teams of the competition, like Frio or, or when the Swans really started doing it a couple years ago, it's got to be a mix in there so that whenever the time for a transition comes, it's got to be smooth. And Crisp is a big part of that. He's 30 at the... He's 30 now and honestly doesn't show much of a side of slowing down. Was club best and fairest in 2021 and 22. And again, had some clutch goals in each of their finals. Scored a goal in each of them. One of those guys that if he misses a game, you notice it much more than you might actually notice him while he plays. That's not a negative thing. He's just like quietly solid. And then if he's out injured, you notice very quickly. And I think part of the well, part of what creates that is also that he's not a hugely emphasized guy in terms of media or or any sort of commentary. He's never been one of the guys, you know, on the top of the list of Collingwood's most impactful players, flashiest players in, in terms of like media discussions. He plays a very solid role on an extremely complete team, and he's one who's hard to replace. If there's any questions about Collingwood? I, I guess that some of it would be a little bit of their depth past like the first couple guys because you look past Ash Johnson and a couple others would have loved to see more of a shot for Jacob Ryan in defense. I guess there are some questions there kind of after the best 26 or so like the guy including the guys you name as emergencies. You know the thing about Jack Chris he always brings his hard hat and his lunch pail. He's a real pros pro. First one in last one out. That just sound like a college basketball coach. No, it's any football coach talking about a white player. Particularly a white player. Yeah. Similarly, any black player is a real class act. <laughs> no white person has ever been called a class act. 
What if they're a Michigan man? No, then they're classy, but not a class act. Okay, big difference there. The league made this very clear that only black people are class acts. If you've never watched the show, the league, watch it. I think Australians would like it. With how much Australians are fascinated by American football in the first place, I feel like enough of them have to have seen the league, especially with guys like Mick Kroll in it. Number 26, only really a couple of nominees. Uh, Hayden Young finishes third, Luke Parker second, and the winner, still the best, Tom Hawkins. No All-Australian captain type year for the first time in forever. He wasn't even Geelong's leading goal kicker, but... I had a hard time taking Hawkins over Parker. This is one where you really fought for it. Just his consistency, even at this age, he's 35. Damn. Which, again, very, very old by funny standards. Oh, extremely. This was his 17th AFL season. The chemistry that he showed off in the forward 50, the way he was able to play off Jeremy Cameron, benefit from some of Brian's passing, worked well with some of the smaller guys like Tyson Stengel and Brad Close. Shows that he's still got a lot left in the tank. He had 18 assists, which is amazing considering that he was teammates with the best field scanner ever. Better than Messi, even. And also that he still finished 10th in the Coleman, despite only playing 20 games. 18 isn't even a career high in assists for him. He had 27 last year. He's had a couple seasons where he's averaged more than a game. It's just something that people haven't ever really highlighted about his game because he's always been more prominent as a goal kicker to the tune of 781 of them. The odds of him getting to a thousand are basically zero. There are no odds. I mean, there are odds because these are Australians and they will bet on anything, but he would probably have to play five more seasons at least. I've said that we need to come up with a new thing to rush the field for, and I think it should be 10 goals in a game. I think that would happen, you know, a couple times a year, not not too often. Plus, it would usually be in blowouts, so it wouldn't, like, impede a close game. Fair enough. But um, as for Hawkins, six foot six, super muscular, still great on forward ruck contests. Like, one of the best at it. Like, I'm stunned when he doesn't win one. Multiple goals in the grand final back in 2022. Off of that, the first couple, actually. Five goals in the round six win over the Swans. And then eight, including, I believe, four or five in the first quarter in the round seven win over Essendon. That was a country game, yeah? Yes, he got Essendon again for another five in round 18. Basically, if you don't have a tall to match up against him, you're fucked. Yeah, now we pointed out Brandon Zerk Thatcher a lot for being his son. And it was less Zerk Thatcher's fault and more Essendon's fault as a team for not having guys who could you know, match up physically where they had to throw Zerk Thatcher into those spots. I guess Ben Mackay should fix some of those problems, at least when he's on the field. Or when he's not occupied playing for a better team. Remember, there is only one Mackay. Barry. He's split into two, Ben and Harry. No, he's not even split into two. It's his two personality. Ah, oh, okay, there we go, there we go. It's like how Roger on American Dad has all his personas. So just like Roger has those identities, Barry Mackay has two. And one of them is an overpaid defender. And one of them is a Colin medalist who's lost his touch. And here's another reason why we need to have some sort of new milestone to celebrate. 2024 is going to be the first time since 1968 that there will not be anybody on an AFL list who has kicked 100 goals in a season. 
I guess it's because Matthew Lloyd overlapped with Buddy enough to allow that to happen. But yes, Tom Hawkins at some point will have things named after him. I don't know if it'll happen as quickly as the Joel Selwood stand, but there's going to be stuff named after Tom Hawkins. He's really good. That's the point. Only after like two more years of delayed renovations because of faulty steel. What happens when you use mafia construction? My God, the whole thing's made of breadsticks. And paint and shellac. All right, number 27. I think this one was pretty easy. Justin McInerney was listed as second. Mark Pittenett and Will Powell also in the conversation. Pittenett, maybe if he was healthier, although Tom DeConing made his absence less glaring this year. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's a ways down from McInerney to the other two, especially with Powell. Well, that's one we didn't include on our list, so maybe we should have put in at number 12, was Tom DeConing. Uh, I, I guess for his back half, yeah. All about that pointy end. But anyway, 27. Yeah, we put Justin McInerney second, but the obvious winner here is Harrison Himmelberg. Harry! I don't trust like that. And the best thing about him, like, yes, I've talked a ton about the sequence against Hawthorne, but it actually, like, summed up his talent level and his skill set really well. Like, the get you a man that can do both. His conversion from forward to defense worked out brilliantly. They needed more defensive help in general, especially a taller defender. I just didn't think Himmelberg would be that guy. Yeah, I don't know. I, he, he's, he's I, been, I would have guessed, like, what? Himmelberg, we'd seen his defensive ability all along, but he's also but he's also such a reliable set shot, just extremely straight kicking action. But he's got, like, the perfect skill set for a tall, in general, in, in the AFL. Between the marking ability as a forward and in defense, Plus the field and goal kicking abilities. He's got the entire tall package. And I like that yeah, they kind of made his role fluid. They would bring him forward when needed. I mean, mostly he would be in a defensive role, but past, at, past the third point of the season, I think that was really the case because he started the season as more of a forward, even when Aaron Tabman was in on occasion. I think it was really once Jake Riccardi started heating up, they realized they could allow Himmelberg to play a bit further back and it wouldn't hurt him. And he would take one of the bigger one-on-one matchups. It would really be Himmelberg taking maybe that secondary target when Sam Taylor took the primary. Well, remember, you talked about Riccardi coming back. That was also around the time when Taylor himself was out injured, so that really made Harry's role even more important. And yeah, he just, he did a terrific job on a team that, like I alluded to earlier, Came into the year, I thought their defense was going to be, like, Sam Taylor and, uh, well... A motherfucking, uh, uh, down, ham, uh, a fucking sandwich. Sandwich! But Emmelberg did really need to be the answer in defense, even when Taylor was in. And he was. Regardless of where he was on the Oval, Himmelberg always found a way to be involved. You don't, you see a guy spending so much of the year in defense that he's still averaging around... 18 disposals and five marks. And, um, you know, we talk about Rowan Marshall getting just three Brownlow votes as one of the biggest travesties of the year. How about none for Harry Himmelberg? At least he got the Alex Jezelenko medal for Mark of the Year. Yeah, I mean, you would think just for his performance at the end of the Hawthorne game, he would have been able to leverage his way into, like, a vote. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say it. I'm gonna say it. A tenth of a mile apart. The winning mark, I think it was over Sicily as well. Yeah, yeah. His second Mark of the Year nomination in the first five rounds. Oh, yeah, I, I don't think we've used this soundbite yet at all. That was during the... Gather round. Yeah, I don't think we used it last episode either. 
yeah, um, you know what? Fuck it. Here it is five more times just to make up for what we missed. We got to get up to the quota. Gather round, gather round, gather round, gather round, gather round. And then the game-saving touch at the other end, just that, that desperation play. Had it not been for Blake Akers existing, that would have been like the defining, like, touched behind of the season, I think, with how far the Giants ended up getting. And there was also that one for Allier. Uh, the difference was that didn't go through for a behind. It was just no score altogether. That's, That's I mean. true, but it was still pretty amazing. Oh, of course, yeah. And then key performances in defense for Himmelberg in basically two finals because one of them was the win and get in against the Blues in round 24. Great rebounding efforts there and against the power as well. Double-digit rebound 50s in both of those, as well as in the super rainy mess of a game in Alice Springs where he was one of the Giants' best. As entertaining as a game that was, I feel like it was entertaining for the wrong reasons, and that Alice Springs needed more flash and firepower. The weather was just so bad there. I really believe it was entirely weather-based. It was Himmelberg and Josh Kelly that came through there. Kelly had the game winner, if I recall, and from like skipped in from 60 or something out. Something nuts like that. As we get deeper into this list, the number of candidates at most of these spots is a little shorter there are still some good ones and some deserving winners but for example number 28 there are only three candidates put jared witz in third nathan murphy in second and our winner is willem drew i really liked murphy as just kind of the grimy make big clutch plays one percenter you know like hustle play type stuff on defense him and darcy Moore together with how similar they look from afar it's almost fitting that they were such big factors in a premiership together. Great news that Murphy is obviously clear to continue his career after all the concussion troubles, including ruling himself out of the grand final at quarter time because of blurred vision, which is about as courageous a call as you can make. But I pushed pretty hard for Willem Drew on this one. First, I do want to give a shout out to Jared Witts, who is my favorite, like, big oaf Ruckman, which is kind of like Riley O'Brien, except I think Riley O'Brien's going to be like a surgeon or something after he's done playing. But Riley O'Brien plays like he's got an IQ of 40 when he's probably closer to 240. Yeah, Jared Witts, if he had any other skill besides hitouts, like if he was just slightly useful around goal on either end, like a more useful defensive mark is something that I'd find to be a very obvious role for him in a Max Gone type way. Yeah, and... Even if, obviously, without that sort of, like, speed and mobility, but, you know, if he could do some more of the... Just with some body say Oscar McInerney or Sam Draper adds to the equation, then he'd be not just really good at getting hitouts, but a superstar. By the way, do you know the term for a game with 50 or more hitouts coined by the Mason Cox show? Oh, that's a plumber. Yes, because you get a lot of taps. I'm not sure if that's the right way to... Do it? I'm not Maybe it should be a bugle thing because of tap. Yeah, but in Australia, they don't do taps. They do last post. I know. I don't care. I'm from America. That was for you, Rick. And for me. But also for you. It's from all of us. I made this for you. Are we just going to become a huge soundbite show? Pretty much. Obama. This episode might have, like, the highest percentage of soundbite. Sound bites that aren't just gather around. Perhaps. I'm not sure. But the reason why I wanted to mention Willem Drew was that we knew what Nathan Murphy brought to the table before this year. 2023 was finally the year that Willem Drew was recognized for more than just his taggy abilities. 
and yet he continued to be a prominent tagger. You know, I had him in the middle of that hue and send tag, Pete. Have you, you, you did end up seeing that, right? Yes, great thumbnail. It was Marcus Windhager being tagged by Willem Drew being tagged by Jack Steele. And who we didn't even have Finn McGinnis in it? Yeah, I wanted to stick with two teams. Like, who would be next in the chain for Port, you think? I don't know. I would almost want to say Butters, because he can have that sort of patrolling job there. But yeah, the- it got to the point, you know, before this year, I just thought of Willem Drew in this tier of just, like, pretty good players on Port with, like, Kane Farrell and some of the others. And he's starting to become more of, like, a, a distinct identity and personality. The type of player that you could see kind of become a cult hero, if they, especially if they actually get to a grand final under Hankley. A cult hero if he had more of, like, a like distinctive personality, for sure. Or maybe a little bit more goal-kicking flair, because he hasn't quite gotten that yet. Sam Paolo Pepper would be the clear cult hero right now for Port, yeah? Already is one. I, I think so. Frankly, I think he's really well-liked around the entire sport. Even got to play with his second cousin this year, you know? Quentin Narkel. Oh, yeah, right, right. Sorry, I thought you were going to say... I don't know why. It would have been really funny. If he would have. He got to ring the bell at the New York Stock Exchange. <laughs> I think Sam Powell Pepper would be the funniest possible person to do that. The funniest person in the AFL? No, just the funniest possible person in general. If the AFL ever becomes a publicly traded thing, I, I feel like Sam Powell Pepper would be a good ambassador for it. Although you know it would be Mason, who would probably set the record as... Actually, would he set the record as the tallest... Or you know what, I bet Yao Ming has rung the bell before. I don't know, I'm sure there are various basketball players that have. Or maybe like Randy Johnson. I was thinking Yao Ming just because tall as he can get there pretty much. Anyway, more about Willem Drew? Yeah, back to Willem Drew. I, I believe fourth of the club best in Ferris is his highest finish this year in a, in a year where it was as competitive as ever. Port had a few elite pressure players this year. Powell Pepper was one of them. Darcy Byrne Jones, the other. He's the type of player who's pressure and who's nose for the ball. His really strong tackling rubs off on the rest of the team. And that's why I think he could end up getting to that sort of cult hero status. 16 tackles in the round 19 loss to Collingwood, which was also one of the games of the year. 10 tackles and six intercepts. Touch the stove. Ah! 10 tackles and six intercepts in the round 10 win over the Demons, which was at that point, the most impressive thing that Port had done the entire season with how slow they started going from untenable to 10 plus wins in a row. If you hadn't taken them seriously yet, it was that round 10 win where it, they finally ended up putting people on alert and Drew was a big part of that. Before we get on to number 29, Pistons are about to lose. You know, they have two wins this season. They have fewer wins this season than there are Marvin Bagley's. Oh my goodness. Is this the record? Is 27 the record? Again, I'm barely an NBA expert. Yeah, the Pistons now have the longest losing streak within a single season at 27. The overall record is the Sixers, which started in March 2015 and ended in December 2015, going through that offseason. They need to do like the Bud Light fridges like they did in Cleveland for the Browns. This is so obvious. But the problem is it, well, considering you're so close to Canada, maybe Labatt would make more sense. I feel like Labatt must, would be a Raptor sponsor, though, if anything. Yeah, but Labatt is pretty common up around the Great Lakes. All right. Still, though, I... Maybe, since it's Detroit, even if it's not alcoholic, Fago. Fago. Nobody will understand. No, but maybe, maybe we do have some listeners who are down with the clown. 
Number 29 is another one where, with a short list, but all valid candidates. George Hewitt and Rory Laird would be the runners up. I, I just want to speak to Hewitt quickly because it was very clear that he was being played out of place a lot of the season when the Blues were struggling. And I don't know what it was that, that caused Michael Voss to say, oh, wait, right, this is where he belongs. But you put George Hewitt in the right place in the middle. You got Matt Kennedy more on the ball and bang. Things started making sense for them. Why was Hewitt ever the sub? I don't know. I, I asked that regularly. Oh, that's the other thing we're going to keep track this year, like the type of subs that are used. The tactical sub. Like pure tactical. Yeah, where it's like, you know, we need another defender, so we're going to take out a forward. The fresh leg sub. The you suck sub. The injury sub. And of course, the victory cigar sub. We're going to keep track of those this year. The victory cigar sub has got to be the coolest of them. Actually, no. You know what the coolest of them is? The unused sub. The unused sub, which I believe happened four times this past season. One was a final. Uh, yeah, Josh Shackey. Never forget. In the loss to Carrington? Uh, was it Carrington or Collingwood? Now I'm trying to remember. I don't know. Melbourne won straight sets. Men's and women's. They won the million dollars and said, Oh my fucking God. Did they miss a buzzer beater? No. Um... They were down six still with like eight seconds left, but the Nets missed a couple free throws and then the Pistons just threw it out of bounds. And now it's official. 27 in a row. The longest single season losing streak in the NBA. Still love my Pistons though. Pistons lost, still loyal as fuck. Yes. We need like some Raider Por Vita type memes here. Piston Por Vita. Anyway, Shea Bolton was our winner for number 29. Rory Laird did do... Rory Laird things. Yeah. A lot of fantasy value. But uh, Shea Bolton, I was honestly shocked to learn that he just turned 25 a couple of weeks ago because he looks a little older and he's been omnipresent throughout our footy journey. Like, he's been a very constant presence for all four years. Especially playing on the premiers going in. It, it, he was a name that He's the type of player that you know right away because of that, and also just because of his play style. Right away, for Americans, we're obviously attracted to the goal kickers and the guys who make the flashy plays, and Shea Bolton consistently did both of those things. I'd say probably the, the two names we learned the fastest when it came to Richmond were Dusty and Shea. Trying to think of who else. Uh, Jack Revolt, probably. Jack Revolt. Uh, well, we also knew about Revolt because Nick was doing commentary then, so that was an easy connection to make. But I'd say probably Shea. Shea was right after Dusty. For me. Jar Hooli was up there, too. Oh, well, Hooli's just awesome. And it seems like he's recovering pretty well from that car crash. Oh, speaking of recovering, did you see Sam Mitchell is in a hospital in New York? What? Yeah, uh, he was on vacation with his family and had a little pneumonia. Had the moan. He's in New York? Yeah. He seems to be doing fine, but yeah, I saw that headline the other day. I was a little surprised. Almost want to fly to New York to wish him well. We can wave to him like the Iowa football team. That's another thing. Like, do Australians know about the Iowa Children's Hospital? Oh, I'm sure. They've seen it through, like, you know, just like how tons of Americans have seen the video of Joel Selwood with Sam Morfoot. Same deal here. Or kind of like, maybe in one of those compilations, like the famous beautiful moments of respect in sport. Yeah, it's, it's what, end of the first quarter that they waved to the Iowa Children's Hospital? Yes. Which is like, basically, it's like built, is it built into the stadium pretty much? No. But, but like right back overlook. right outside it? I mean, it, as if having cancer wasn't bad enough, these kids have to watch three and a half hours of Iowa football. Hey, great defense. Great punting. 
absolutely. I like the guys at one of their games a few weeks ago with the punts sweatshirts. I think it was the game against Nebraska. Yeah. Tory Taylor for Heisman. Yes. He had more yardage on punts than Iowa had with offense. Anyway, Shea Bolton, uh, same color scheme as Iowa, if that means anything, but just yellow and black. Got a lot of the ball, including in a round 17 win against Sydney, where he didn't even kick a goal, had two behinds, but 31 disposals, gained almost 600 meters, had nine clearances. His clearance numbers got really good over the course of the season. He had he had a similar type of game where he actually did kick a goal in that round 13 win at Frio, where it was a lot of the Westerners that really lifted for Richmond in that game between him and Marlon Pickett and Liam Baker. I love it how as much as a lot of the team around him has gotten worse. Shea has just taken on more and more responsibilities and roles and been good at them. Well, Dusty has been playing more forward because he's been looking pretty natural there. So Shea just picked up some of the slack in the middle. I think that's going to be even more necessary now with Trent Cotchin having retired. I think Jacob Hopper's probably going to be one of the biggest supporters there now if he is in better health. But overall, yes, this was his most active season in the midfield, even though he didn't get the All-Australian nod like last year. He had career-high numbers all across the board. He had his 14 Brownlow votes were a career-high as well, so he's getting the notice he deserves largely for the play that he's putting up, and he's continuing to kind of diversify his role on the field of the process. If he just cleans up his goal-kicking, that's like the one last thing that remains for him to transcend things almost like Dusty, just in like a smaller package. I like guys who can be appreciated by both casuals and by people who look at the game more in depth. And Bolton is certainly one of those. He is an easy all your cool team member. Number 30, there were really two candidates, two very different players, two all Australians. Nominees who are not going to quite get to that final cut, but we do like as well include Eric Hipwood and Tom McCartan. McCartan, a clear fourth this year, especially playing injury, especially with injury and concussion struggles. Hipwood third, turning it on more so in the later part of the year. This was a fun debate that we had between Darcy Moore and Charlie Kernow. The thing with Hipwood, we're still waiting on, at some point, he might just have that gear where he's super consistent and is like in the Coleman race because we've seen it in flashes and we just need to see it in like more than a couple games at a time. I think he has that in him. I think he can totally do it. Is he going to be able to like get past Danaher in terms of the tall area, though? Because that's the real question there. Because you've got Danaher on the tall side, Cameron for the small. Yes, but Danaher's also 29, and, you know, people get hurt or have kids. I mean, he had kids, and they won without him because Hipwood. Yeah. this was That was the 2022 semifinal, I believe, yeah? Yeah. Anyway, we went back and forth on this between Moore and Kernow, and I think you got to give it to Kernow because, once again, using the same sort of argument that we used for Weedering, greater value to the team even when the team was at its worst. Yeah, like, there were a couple of games, there were not many, where Darcy Moore was held in check, and if you could actually hold him in check, you'd probably beat Collingwood. There were almost no games where anyone could stop Charlie Kernow to the point that even if the rest of the team sucked, you could count on him, and you can count on Jacob Wiedering. It was to the point where he scored a goal every game this season. I mean, he did only score one goal in each of their finals, and yet they still won the first two of those. You know, some lower scoring affairs in there, but a goal in all 
26 games he played this season, which is a remarkable feat in and of itself, and 19 multi-goal performances, including six games where he got five or more. Does five qualify as a bag these days? Yeah. I think yeah. five is a bag. I think we've had this debate. Five is a bag. Smaller bag, but it's a bag. Six is when you really start talking about a bag. Yeah, five's a bag. And considering the games in which those five goal performances came, five in round two against Geelong, going up against Jeremy Cameron's great performance as well. That was a great back and forth there. Six on Good Friday. He obviously eviscerated the Eagles twice. He honestly drew and quartered the Eagles. But also, six straight against Collingwood round 20, and 5-1 against the Suns round 23, a game where the Blues really had to fight to win that. And then Kerno ended up going back into defense at the end and getting a key mark right at the end, I believe, as well. Not a role that you expect from, you know, that that's the sort of desperation move you make to lock things up, but he's cable there as well. And, and when you're comparing him against another one of the best contested marks of the league on the defensive end, and he does that, I feel like that's almost an effort to take things over the top. In 2021, he played in just four games and had two goals, and he missed all of 2020 as well. 2019, 18 goals in 11 games, so it's really been the last two years he's really taken off. What's amazing, before the last two seasons, he had a record of 11-51, and 51. been a lot better the last two years, 27-20 and 20 with one beautiful draw. Also, he had kicked a total of 79 goals before these past two seasons. He kicked 81 this season alone, counting Fidas. If you want to talk about like success from one year to the next, or like in patches of a couple years, then you can give Kerno the nod as well. We saw it coming more from Darcy Moore than we did from Charlie Kerno. And obviously, a good time to talk about Darcy Moore as well. I ask again, how soon after his footy career is done will Darcy Moore be recruited into politics. I don't know. He could also just do a bunch of commercials and stuff. He's got a lot of options. He could end up just being that that Shaq type where he just does any commercial he wants. I'm not sure if he'd have like the same sort of humor or like David Ortiz. You know, I am very much not a Red Sox fan, but even you have never a David Ortiz fan, but Keenan Thompson's impressions of him on SNL are brilliant. And also Ortiz is always good fun with the with the commentary team for Fox. He's, he's good on TV. Yeah. I feel like Darcy Moore will just be good at whatever he tries his hand at. And remember, Moore started his career as more of a forward. I know typically the, the thing with captains and with coaches is, you know, you consider the best ones just the ones whose teams exceeded expectations. But I think there really is something to Darcy Moore as a leader, especially just listening to Mason Cox talk about how close they are and how much he's helped him, and then the speeches he's given, and just the way he conducts himself during interviews. It's like, yeah, you kind of, the whole team kind of models themselves after that. Which is a bit strange considering the the reputation Collingwood typically has. Yeah, you'd think like Braden Maynard would be the perfect guy for that. Well, look, he's vice captain. Yeah, so you still have like a little of that edge, but... Oh, you, you still got plenty of the edge on the field. It just doesn't come from Moore, who is just a very, very clean defender and clearly the leader of that back group and the club overall like as much as people like badmouthing Collingwood I don't think that you really have an ability to badmouth Darcy Moore yeah it's it's difficult as someone who likes to be a hater you know what no I can badmouth Darcy Moore seltzer ad no actually um because I don't like seltzer okay seltzer is crap I'm not big on seltzer either but no it was not that the answer is 
Legolas was the wrong costume choice for Mad Monday. Yeah, he should have been like... He should have been Lucius Malfoy. Yeah. I want to see a photo with him and Jason Isaacs in costume. Or Tom Felton, because apparently if they're doing that TV series, Tom Felton's going to be Lucius. Well, that would make sense just off of, you know, aging. Recently learned, by the way, that Tom Felton, when he talks to Jason Isaacs, he calls him dad. Like, completely genuinely. Speaking of dad, Brian just came back in. Yep. Let's see if he jumps up on the bed or just goes underneath. He is our most reliable listener. Be like Brian. Number 31. Now we are actually going with the defender. Harris Andrews. Runner up. Bo McCreary, who I didn't realize how many people don't like him. Like, I get that he... I think there are just more hateable Collingwood players, and I just really like the way he plays, even if it's on a team I don't like. One of those other guys like Jack Crisp and Jordan DeGoey, who are similarly hated, that make those sorts of winners plays and are pressure leaders. I don't think Crisp gets quite as much hate as like DeGoey or Maynard. I, I think Crisp has been involved in some, in some off-field controversies as well, but there's some rumor about him that I don't think had any merit to it. Yeah. At, at the very least, there hasn't been any follow-up to it. I know that. Yeah. But McCreary is the runner up here. I want to also mention two Baileys with different spellings on the shortlist. Those being Bailey A.I. Dale and Bailey A.Y. Rich, who even with the time he missed, still was a co-leading goal kicker for Melbourne this year, which underscores just how important he is to their attack. Bailey Dale is always is always someone that I just have found underappreciated on the Bulldogs, has has the All-Australian honor to his name, but is probably their best outside mover from defense, especially now that Caleb Daniel has taken on more forward. But the winner for number 31 is Harris Andrews. We do go with the defender this time. We said before the year, especially with Marcus Adams being first inactive and then officially retiring, that if the Lions were going to get further, he would need to have a career season. Delivered. More than a bounce-back season, right there on the cusp of making the All-Australian team. It was hard to see him miss that. Club best and fairest, and in his first season as a co-captain as well. So the new leadership responsibilities were nothing that detracted from his playing ability, which can also be said about Darcy Moore. I will say there were a couple of teams who were able to quiet him a bit, but the amount of work that had to be put in, like, for example, even when they beat Collingwood, he only had nine disposals. The games where teams quieted him, they still managed to win most of, other than the game at Adelaide round 11, where I, I think the Crows put... Did they kind of do like a forward tag on him, or was that Fogarty that played a lot on him there? I think it might have been. That sounds right. I think it was mostly Fogarty on Andrews with some of Tex Walker on him as well. Like, it, it required a reverse tag to limit Andrews, and that can be that's something that can be said of very few defenders right along there with guys like James Sicily. Some pretty fun stuff about Harris Andrews. He kicked a goal in each of his first three career games, then kicked one in his 12th game, then kicked two in his 29th game with Q-Clash lost, one each in games 38 and 48, then took until game 75 for him to kick another, and then nothing until 117, and then nothing until 181. So it's becoming less and less frequent. So it's like a reverse Jake Kolejaspi? I guess... He did have three bounces this year. Were those his first? No. Damn. He has, I believe, 11 career bounces. Wow, that's 11 more than Max Gone. Again, we talked about this last episode, but I want Max Gone to have like a completely unnecessary bounce only in the final game of his career. 
in like final seconds as well. Like they give the ball to him and he's just, you know, he could like wait the rest of the clock out and he just bounces it. It's like boop, <laughs> right before the siren. And like enough so that the, the statisticians have to tell like, wait, did that come before the siren? And they have to play Bounce It by Juicy J. Okay, uh, I'm down with that. Getting back to Andrews, I think he did better work this year as a loose defender, though the one-on-one jobs that he did were still pretty strong. Very few defenders can ever command a tag. He's been tagged. Tom Stewart's been tagged. Maybe yeah. someone will try that on like Sam Taylor at some point, but it's it's a short list. And it takes a very high-profile offensive player for the Lions to be willing to move Andrews onto a one-on-one. It was Max... Sorry. <clears throat> it was Max King in round 15 this season, and it worked spectacularly. King was held goldless. A great job between Andrews and Jack Payne to quiet the Saints that day. And Andrews and Payne's success really did go hand-in-hand because usually it was Payne who had the man assignment and Andrews was able to stay loose because of that. And then I guess secondary guys on there would be like Brandon Starcevich taking another target past that. Why again was a healthy Jack Payne left out of the grand final? Yes, Darcy Gardner had a good game in the prelim. No, it wasn't worth it to keep him in. I mean, again, I think the rationale was like, we'd rather have, you know, a fully in the swing of things guy than a possibly rusty guy. But I still think he needed to be in there. Number 32 is not Brian Myers. He takes second spot on the podium. Yes, other nominees were pretty much all forwards. Darcy Fogarty, Michael Frederick, Mason Wood, who's, I guess, more of a midfielder, but... Wood had a man-possessed type of start to the season. It was ridiculous. 20 disposals and a goal in each of his first three games, and had at least 20 still in his first six, and they went five and one in that stretch. Somehow, Wood only got one Brownlow vote this year. Yeah, the Saints Brownlow vote. I mean, yes, Jackson Clare. Yes, Brad Crouch, but... Not enough love to Marshall, not enough love to Mason Wood near the start of the season. But our winner at number 32 is someone, remember, as someone who will hate for Brian Myers no matter what, it is hard to convince me of anything else, but this is a guy who didn't even play in the AFL this year until round 10. He played 17 games this year and basically solved most of his team's problems. That being GWS Ruckman Kieran Briggs, Averaged nearly 26 hitouts, over 15 disposals. Obviously, a lot of contested possessions because if you're a Ruckman, you're mostly going to have contested possessions. Uh, six and a half clearances was terrific at getting clearances himself, and the team really fed off that. And he did this not just against, you know, like teams missing guys. You look at the guys he had his best games against. We've got two against Rowan Marshall, one against Luke Jackson, one against Riley O'Brien, and one against Tim English listed. And we rate English as the best rug in the league this year, as the All-Australian selectors did. If you had told me at the start of the year that the Giants were going to be playing finals, a prelim no less, the one-point losers in a prelim, you'd have to think, oh yeah, Braden Proust stayed disciplined. Or Matt Flynn would have convinced us in some way. He's now an eagle. Braden Proust didn't play a single AFL game this year. And the Giants did not miss him past round 10. No disrespect to Proust, but Kira Briggs was phenomenal. And he solved so many problems. They radically changed as a team. They were so much better off of clearances. He was able to help feed out two 
that mix of fast midfielders, including Canelio and Kelly. He made Tom Green's job easier because he wasn't the sole contested winner. Hell, he was damn good below his knees as well for his size, averaging four and a half tackles a game with it as well and getting some freeze off those. And as our friends who are Giants fans like Rick Shibani and Ross Allen will tell us, and Briggs was seen as just being an extremely undisciplined player for those first few years there. And they're waiting for him to turn a corner, especially being a homegrown guy, a New South Wales native, an academy product. Finally, here was the year that they'd been waiting for out of Kieran Briggs, who's still just 24. Did he have the best of the best hitout numbers? No, but he was damn good there and did so much other stuff around the entire field that it made up for maybe not necessarily getting the sort of like Jared Witts or Riley O'Brien level hitout numbers. It was his work immediately off those contests that was sometimes even more important and translated to some of the strong clearance numbers for him. You don't beat Rowan Marshall and Tim English with pure tapping ability alone. I'm sorry, but the way you said Tim English made it sound like you were reading it and you were like, skeptical that it was an actual person's name i don't know why it it, it does seem like a very made-up name and, and he and at times tim english does have that video game rendering look to him not as much so as like michael a taylor or who was the who was the afl player we said looks like a video game rendering oh who was it look like a very generic person was it it wasn't windhager was it no no was another scene i don't think it was xavier o'halloran but we talked about o'halloran a lot this year was it a docker uh did, yeah, maybe it was O'Halloran. I don't know. O'Halloran does look like a pretty ordinary guy. Maybe that's it then. I don't know. We're going to have to do some some contemplating. Like going through some heads. Wait, was it Jacob Ware? Let me see. Jacob Ware was really on my radar at the start of the year. I don't think so. No, I don't think it was anybody with a bunch of facial hair. Yeah, I don't think it was. I'm not even sure if it was a giant. We'll, we'll come back to this. We will figure this out. At, at some point, I feel like we have to. But to be talking about Kieran Briggs like this after he didn't even play until round 10 should say enough about how highly as far away from where the games are played as we are value him. Finally, we are going to wrap up this episode because we are right around the two-third mark with number 33. We only had three candidates for this one. In third place, Darcy Byrne-Jones. In second place, Aaron Naughton. And your winner, the man with the most vaudeville-like gritty we've ever seen, the how-do-you-do fellow kids gif, the one and only Zach Bailey. Zach Bailey is probably my favorite Brisbane line. Can you figure out who mine is? I feel like I told you before. You've told me I believe it's Cameron Rayner. Correct. Bailey's just another one of those guys that I noticed very early on. One of those perfect sort of spark plug players with the goal scoring ability he has as well. Super versatile in the forward half, and he's never going to be even, you know, like the third or fourth guy on anybody's game plan. So he has the ability to just break out for these massive games. That, that's one of the most fun things about him, is that you know he's going to get these sorts of opportunities as a small. Well, I will say, on lesser teams, he'd certainly be higher on game plans. It's not a knock on him as much as it is a compliment to the talent around him that he's not higher up on game plans. So. And it fits him. He's got to like being underestimated at this point. I think of him as just a dynamic, explosive player who... If a game feels stagnant, he can come in and shake something up. Did that in the grand final. Probably the goal of the finals. A couple amazing ones, actually. And you look at the, the best performances he had this year when he got 
his votes when he got his greatest goal outputs. They were against some of the better defensive teams. The Blues didn't have an answer for him in round eight. Had four goals straight there and two votes in a game that really quieted Carlton supporters for a while. I remember watching the end of that game while I was starting an early work shift and just being amazed at how big of a factor Bailey played in the forward half. That was like, that game was Zach Bailey up forward, Jack Payne in the back. The Lions as a whole are great at Marvel Stadium, but I think not just for his after the siren goal, but for his overall portfolio, I think we can call Zach Bailey like the king of Marvel Stadium. Uh, I mean, I'd take that over Cam Zerhar. Dwayne Russell would say otherwise, but no, I, I, I almost want to say Bailey. Like the away king of Marvel? Yeah. In terms of Victorian-based players, that's a tough call. Maybe, like, would we say Kerno because the Blues have played a lot there? Eh, they're getting more time at the G lately. Is it? I, Sam Draper? Did he have the goal of the year? Yeah, he had to have had the goal of the year. That was there, yeah, because it was against the Suns, I think. The mighty Sun. It's, it still should have been Jeremy Cameron, but... I am totally fine with Sam Draper winning that. I feel like he's a guy we have to meet when we go to get over to Australia. Oh, yes. How fucking weird is it, by the way, that Sam Draper shaved his mustache for Movember? Very weird. Like, you wonder why he doesn't like doing it. He looks 17. Anyway, Zach Bailey, even in like an ugly, rainy game, he could make some sort of explosive play that just kind of like sparks some life, gives you a jolt, breaks up the rhythm. How many more cliches are you going to use? You can't win the division in April, but you can lose it in April. If you have two quarterbacks, you have none. Oh, yeah, he just turned 24. He missed out on the 22 under 22 team for 2022 by a single day because he turned 23, I think, on grand final day last year. He would have been there with ease. He scored at least 29 goals each of these past three seasons and has been healthy the entire time. Scored goals in 16 different games this year. He's not the player you expect to get like a huge bag, but he's going to be that that sort of pesky small who you know is going to break out for a number of important touches. And, and those are the types of players that maybe it takes some newer fans a bit longer to appreciate, but I'm glad we both caught on to him so quickly, me in particular. So that gets us up to 33, and that's right about the uh, two-thirds point here. I think this episode might be a little longer than the last. Not sure, but there was a lot of like, shit posty joke type stuff this was fun hopefully this provides some good funny content as we approach the new year maybe break up the monotony of everybody's family being around you constantly and having nothing to watch but test cricket college football come join us in watching meaningless college football games with backups and half empty stadiums yeah, we've had that on in the background as we've been doing this whole recording. Reminder that you can follow me on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. I'm at Castle Media, Brian Harambe's on Instagram, cat named Brian. Together, we are on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Americans Footy. We've got one more episode to go in our second season. We're going to complete this three-part journey before the ball drops in Times Square, I guess, or whatever. I don't know something. I, I just find the Times Square ball drop to be so old at this point. Imagine sucks. 